Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Play to pod. Greetings from a sunny London. This is Dr. Ruth Glenowen bringing you episode two of series two of Play to Pod. In this week's episode, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Ivana Burinsma. Dr. Ivana is the executive director and the founder of Insteps. She has more than 25 years' experience in the field and she is an active researcher, in, uh, particularly in naturalistic developmental behavioural interventions. And she's co-written a book about NWI2, which we'll tell you more about at the end. InSteps are a behavioural treatment clinic who provide naturalistic developmental behavioural interventions, so NDBIs, um, to families all over Southern California. Um, they work and use the same type of approaches as Blue Sky, Play to Talk. They use pivotal response therapy, which is a very well-researched NDBI model. They work with families, uh, quite extensively families and parent coaching, they individualise their treatment and they have an amazing team who we had the privilege to spend some time with at their Orange County Clinic way back in 2018. So it's been great to get to know Ivana over the years and it's brilliant to have her on the podcast. They are much bigger than we are, but we aspire to be as big as them someday. And they worked with over 3,000 families at their last count and they have four clinic locations. So um, yeah, it's an amazing service and we're really privileged to have Ivana on our podcast today. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Ivana Bruinsma, who is founder of InSteps, which is a behavioral health company over in California. And they also have InSteps Academy, which is a new private school. So it's really lovely to speak to you. And thank you very much for coming on Play to Put. Oh, thank you, Ruth. I'm very excited today. <laughs> um, so <laughs> if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do with children with autism and maybe kind of where you, where you started, I guess. Uh, okay. So I'm actually originally from the Netherlands. I grew up in the Netherlands and was an exchange student in the United States in the 80s. I'm really going to date myself here. <laughs> and uh, came back 10 years later when I was in a developmental psychology program and met my husband. And that's how I ended up in the United States. I worked at a developmental uh, center for individuals, mostly adults with uh, developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm with Paul Touchette and I worked there for two years and then I got into the graduate program with Bob and Lynn Cagle at UCSB and that's where I learned to do pivotal response Mm -hmm. treatment. And then after I finished my PhD, we really wanted to try to live in the Netherlands again. So we moved our whole family back to the Netherlands and I worked for the um, kind of the premier autism center there and introduced them to PRT, set up a PRT center there Um, And it was really taking off. But then my husband really missed working and wanted to go back to the United States. And we had a pact that, you know, two years we would try it out. And if it didn't work out, we would both agree that we were going to move back. So (laughs) I kept my promise and we moved back to uh, California. And then I started um, building out the um, uh, one-to-one services for a friend who had a company 
and worked there for four years. And I grew that program from like five employees to 110 or something like that by the time I left. And then in 2010, I decided if I wanted to do it my way, I really had to go into business for myself. So Mm -hmm. in 2010, I started In Steps and I really envisioned In Steps to be a comprehensive intervention center. So one-to-one services in, in PRT, but also a research component, a school component, a respite component, a daycare component, an after-school component. I I have still have these big plans. <laughs> <laughs> but now 10 years in, we have the school that we founded a couple of years ago um, and InSteps itself, um, which mostly provides one-to-one services in-home, in-clinic and social facilitation groups. Mm-hmm. Um, is now all across Southern California and expanding very rapidly into other areas in California. And now we're going to start going into Texas. Wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah, so we're, yeah, so it's really exciting. We're about to cross our 200 employees. Wow, that's incredible. Because so, you started really, it's really, really small and it's not been that long, really, if you think about it. You've grown hugely. Yeah, it, it's and the last six months have been Um, just a really great opportunity for us. I think we had invested for a long time in our employees. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in California, everything is insurance funded, right? So you can only provide as many services as you have BCBAs. Um, And because we had this really great clinical leadership program, in one year's time, we had 10 people pass the BCBA test. And because that basically doubled the number of BCBAs in the company, we had, we've had we had this giant explosion of, of opportunity in our organization because we don't, we don't want to lose those BCBAs. Yeah. So we've been hiring and expanding and it's, it's been really busy. <laughs> great. It's been, <laughs> it's been very gratifying to see all that work come to fruition. Yeah, it must be. And you've got a great team. We had the privilege of coming to visit you, didn't we, a few years ago. And I remember meeting your um, clinical team in the Orange County in Irvine in that yeah. team. and they were just they were so much fun and just so enthusiastic and got so much energy you wouldn't want to lose any of them so you need to be <laughs> creating new things yes. to keep them busy huh yes well and that's funny right because when we when I started in steps um we really wanted to keep the company really small so fewer than 50 employees was kind of our our hope and dream mm-hmm. um but then what happens is you mentor these people and they become BCBAs and then they want opportunities. And so, you know, three years in or something, two of those BCBAs pulled me in on a Sunday and said, here's why we think we should be expanding. (laughs) (laughs) You've been nurturing all these people. We also want to grow. So you can't stay small if you want to hang on to us. And and they were right. And they're still with me now. And that's enthusiasm getting your boss in on a Sunday to talk about (laughs) expanding the business, isn't it? That is is definitely commitment. Um, and what about yes. InSteps Academy? Because that's something that's been quite a recent development, hasn't it? And that's, I mean, that is absolutely our dream to to set up a nursery yes. and a school of these guys. It's a bit different in the UK. It's a little bit harder. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about InSteps Academy and, and how that's been going. Yeah, it's always been a part of our dream to really be like a wraparound service that has all of the different um, things that a family might need. And education was at the top of my list, even though, you know, in California, special education is, is, is quite good compared to other areas in the United States or in, around the world. Um, but we really wanted to offer a highly individualized private education 
for families that have a child with learning differences and autism. And so we started with, you know, two kids and, and we actually started with kids that mostly had behavior challenges, but were close to um, being near where their same age peers are in their academic curriculum. But since then, we've also added a classroom for kids who are more impacted by autism and who are more on a life skills curriculum. It's been it's been really exciting. We have we have a fantastic teacher. One of our teachers just moved to Oregon, so we're looking for a second teacher right now. But you know, it's 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 like a little it's like a little baby that you have to feed on time and <laughs> you know, nurture and see it grow. So, you know, right now we're we're very aggressively looking for a location. Uh-huh. I think the school needs its own space with outside play areas mm-hmm. that are fenced in. Like there are so many demands. How many children that. do you have in the InSteps Academy program at the moment? Uh, right now, though, definitely uh, during COVID, we had a hit. We had 10 ki- kids in the program when the pandemic hit. And then, you know, we've had some families who have been really affected by loss of a job or change in family circumstances or sick family members. So currently we have six kids in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and our kids are, are all like kindergarten to third grade right now. Mm-hmm. And next year we're really working to extend lower. So to add like the preschool, mm-hmm. pre-K group, because I think there's a huge need for that group, yeah. especially too. And we get a lot of inquiries for that group. And funny enough, there are not a lot of options in private education um, in Orange County and San Diego. California. Yeah, I mean, when I've spoken to people in other parts of the states, there's, there's, there's services. <laughs> We're just like, wow, there are services <laughs> because in the UK there are no yeah. services or very limited services. Right. But there's such a difference, isn't there, in, in between states and in between like communities, even within states, what's available, what's on insurance, what's private pay and, and just what's, what's out there. It's it's really complex. And I feel really fortunate. I mean, I was in the Netherlands providing services and there everything is you know, through the government, but there's definitely services available. But even there, it's very location mm-hmm. specific. Um, in in California, you know, all of the different insurances provide some level of treatment now in California, and all 50 states now have an autism mandate. But what you get through your insurance, it can be very different from insurance to insurance. Um, so it's not at all clear. And there are still people who are on insurances that do not cover because we do not have a federal mandate in the United States yet. Right. For autism. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And so in terms of the space you want for your InSteps Academy, if anyone's listening, you need like a <laughs> a fully um, uh, no independent space in the middle of California yes. somewhere that's got big outdoor play area. Yeah. About five to 10,000 square feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enough to fit about 100 children. <laughs> Maybe 200 yes, children exactly. if we're going by your, your, your growth as well. So we've been talking to parents across the UK in our first few episodes and access to health services and the kind of intervention is really quite limited here. Typically, what happens with parents in California when they first identify that their child has some developmental delays and maybe they have red flags for autism? Again, it kind of depends on where you live. I mean, most people obviously go to their pediatrician first. In Orange County, especially people are, are the, the different institutions are really encouraging um, PCPs, primary care physicians, to send people on to the regional centers. 
some regional centers will do the diagnostic piece and some will not. Mm-hmm. San Diego does, for example, and Orange County does not. So, you know, before COVID, there was 12 to 18 month wait list for some of the diagnostic centers to do a full evaluation. I think those numbers have improved quite a bit because we are definitely seeing a slowing in terms of the number of intakes and the regional centers are seeing a lot fewer kids come in right now than we used to. But in California, we're very fortunate because we have the regional center system and that's not, it's not like that in other states. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically what that means is every catchment area, so to say, they, they divvied up the states into all of these different catchment areas and they put a regional center in each catchment area and that regional center gets a pot of state money and they're responsible for basically coordinating care for all people that are diagnosed with developmental disabilities and meet certain criteria. And this is a lifelong service. So it goes anywhere from, you know, right after birth, they can identify kids as early as in the ICU or in the neonatal centers, all the way to adulthood. So they, they take care of the group homes, they provide respite services, they can authorize behavioral health services, our services. Um, so they, they have a really wide range of services that they can offer. All ABA services used to go through regional centers. And then when the autism mandate came, first all commercial insurance kids um, moved over to health insurance. And then uh, Medi-Cal, which is, I don't know what you call that in England, but it's like... So the services that were offered in California, um, it's kind of similar to the rest of the US in terms of its its behavioral health. It will be ABA. Um, Sometimes it will be kind of naturalistic ABA um, if that's kind of within the insurance remit. Um, How long are the waiting lists for services? I would say, you know, again, it really differs by area. Um, Orange County, which is where I am, has a lot of behavioral health companies. I think there there are over 70 now, so it's very rich with providers. Most people are still having some difficulty getting services after three o'clock. But if you are open during the day or you are combining it with, you know, online school right now, then I think most most uh, companies can see you right away mm-hmm. now. Well, that's good. So no no wait lists for those kids, yeah. That's good. And what are the kind of age ranges for diagnosis in the US? In, in California particularly, is it, is it quite a young kind of, are, they, are people um, diagnosing children under two, for instance? Because I know we spoke to someone else in Texas um, this week and they were saying that Texas as a state doesn't uh, really diagnose children under three, which is interesting when you look at the rest of America. And so is California, um, you know, the professionals in California, diagnosing children quite young or is it getting older? I wish I could say it was better here. <laughs> I, I think there are some providers that are willing to diagnose under three. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always on the provider. Sometimes the parent isn't ready to hear it. Yeah. Um, the regional center provides services up until age three, just um, on the basis of a developmental delay. But those programs are very small. You know, we know that the research says when they're little, you want to provide 25 plus hours a week of intervention. Um, But a regional center program is often six to 10 hours a week. Mm -hmm. So we always are frustrated, especially when we think this child is going to end up being diagnosed. I wish we could use this time to make the most of that brain plasticity Mm -hmm. that they have at, you know, 18 months. 
Um, but sometimes also the parent isn't ready to hear the diagnosis and to go the insurance route. And we have to wait for them, get them you know, up to speed to mm-hmm. why it's important to do early intervention. Um, and a lot of um, physicians still in California feel that you know, until age three, it, there is there is maybe a, a risk, but they're not ready to pull the, the trigger and, and say it's ASC. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like um, I, I would really like to see the government moving towards um, standard screenings that would directly feed into comprehensive developmental evaluations that, you know, with no delays, either become a diagnosis of being at risk so that they can get services under that or just get a diagnosis of autism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see the weirdest diagnoses come out sometimes. I, I'll see reports where they're saying, you know, uh, what, what was the one that I saw recently, like brain uh, slowing in brain growth or something like that. And I was <laughs> like, what? What are we talking about here? Yeah, we get <laughs> just very, not willing to say. We it. get varied diagnosis for families, and they don't always know what it means because they're not really given a lot of information. So, some children may be diagnosed with childhood autism. Other children might be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Other children may be diagnosed with another version of autism, but it's not always the same terminology as well that's used over here. And I think that's kind of difficult because when families Google what you know the the, the um, diagnosis because it's not been explained properly they they're not quite sure if childhood autism means does that then is that child then going to grow out of it and it's that misinformation I think that's a real problem and having that uniformity of diagnosis I think is very important isn't it um so going it is and I, yeah sorry no, go ahead. carry on <laughs> no I was just thinking about you know everyone here has moved to the DSM-5 diagnoses and and I think uniformity is more present here and I, I would say a lot of people in the insurance companies that are authorizing our services are asking for the level of autism as it is in the DSM four, mm-hmm. a five, and um, they they um, are, are asking more and more for a comprehensive evaluation. So not just the autism diagnosis, but also tests of their adaptive abilities, tests of their cognitive abilities, and so um, you know, have you ruled out other um, factors or genetic disorders. And, um, and sometimes we end up waiting because the insurance won't accept the um, diagnostic that was done by the psychologist because they want a more comprehensive um, evaluation, which is really unfortunate. Mm, especially when children have to wait. That's always the hardest part, yes. isn't it? Because like, the waiting is the problem because, like you say, the neuroplasticity you know, the brain being so malleable at that age and stage as they get older, it doesn't happen that way. So having to wait is, is just not good. Um, so going back to your work in the field, what are the therapies that you you know, and you've obviously done lots of research and lots of writing on this, what therapies have the best outcomes for pre-fives with autism with or without language delays? For what did you say? For, for pre-fives with autism. I'll ask the question oh, again. Pre-fives. Yeah, I can ask the question yes. again and then we can. it's easier to edit. So going back to your work in the field, what are the therapies that have the best outcomes for pre-fives with autism with and maybe without language delays? Well, actually, you know, of course, the book that I wrote with, with Mendy and, and Aubin and Laura Schreibman really lays out the uh, robust research behind naturalistic developmental behavior interventions. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, NDBIs, um, naturalistic developmental behavior interventions, have many years of research now to show that they can really make a significant difference in the developmental trajectories of kids with and without language. Um, I personally, of course, am, am partial to PRT, but since writing the book and doing all my research, I, I, we use a, a we put all the strategies of the different NDBI models in our toolkit mm-hmm. and individualize whatever the child needs in order to provide the best um, services. And, you know, NDBI are based on ABA. Mm-hmm. Uh, applied behavior analysis principles are behind all of the strategies that we use. Um, and ABA research is really um, a robust what is that, 50, 50 years of, of research showing pretty substantial improvements mm-hmm. uh, in outcomes for kids with autism uh, under five, but also um, school age and adolescent and even a lot of research now coming out with adults. Um, so I'm very excited to be part of this movement towards more naturalistic services because I think, you know, we, in order to improve outcomes for all students and all kids, we have to use what is most evidence-based, but also what we know gives the best outcomes for kids with autism, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so um, some, I think for, for every child, I would like to get to a place in the research where for every child, we can look at their profile and say, okay, we know that this profile is best improved with this set of strategies, but we're just not quite there yet. I think we're going to get there in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, I, I often feel like it's a lot of, you know, trial and error. Um, and we know some things work really well with kids with autism um, who are nonverbal. We know that NDBI are especially good at getting kids to talk. Um, but, you know, I, I think... The research is still needed to make sure that we um, can match the intervention strategy to the specific profile of each kid. Mm-hmm. And it's that uniqueness, isn't it? It's that individuality of every child who yes. may share a diagnosis, but actually there are certain things that they might find difficult, shared traits, but it's not a one size fits all. And that's the the big thing with professionals working in the field that we all have to you know you guys are just amazing and you're, you're really good at this being really creative thinking outside the box it's that play-based um intervention but it has a science behind it and that's the really important part um because I think you know I was talking to somebody else who we were talking about kind of more traditional what the kind of the opinions of ABA are sometimes in some places around the world mm. um and that traditional view of sitting a child at a table getting them to point to picture cards and there's a lot of external reinforcement and there's a lot of you know reaction from the child they maybe don't want to be there but the thing about the way that you work and the way that we work as well as making sure that the child is actually having fun and that's the biggest part of it they are still learning but they are having lots of fun on the way and it's that motivation being intrinsic to those play activities that the child has actually chosen that's really important um, and I think that's where the more traditional tabletop stuff maybe kind of doesn't give pe- uh, children with autism as much of that social input because they're not really getting to enjoy someone else's company because they're having to do things that they maybe don't want to do necessarily. And then they're getting a break from right. the social as their reward. And I think the NDBI models are, are the ones that are really going to make the most difference in terms of that social development as well. 
Right. And I think, you know, going to conferences over the years, I've definitely over the last 20 years slowly seen a shift in ABA towards more motivation-based strategies, towards thinking about um, operationally defining um, EOs and all of that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all of that work, Jack Michael's work. There, There's definitely more and more attention towards naturalistic work. Sometimes it's called NET. Sometimes it's called verbal behavior. Sometimes it's called ESDM. I mean, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. overlap between all of the different models that are out there. Um, But I agree with you. I think, you know, play or natural routine. So I, I think play is really important for kids under five, like you were talking about. But for all people that you work with, you have to immerse those opportunities for learning within play or natural routines Mm -hmm. because that gives you more generalization it keeps people engaged and and have more fun and that means you know the learning is happening more naturally um and it's sustainable by other people in the environment other mediators Mm -hmm. right because eventually we can't just depend on the child or the individual learning only when the therapist is there we need all mediators in the environment to be helping with the learning for the child. And I, I love, you know, seeing my therapists in the clinic working with kids because oftentimes they're having so much fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it is it is way better than what I do now. <laughs> um, and I, I love seeing how creative they are. And, you know, we we really work with our staff to like you said, think outside the box and mm-hmm. come up with um, activities that really mesh with what the child finds exciting and motivating. We help them think that through. And I almost feel like in a sense, NDBI are harder to implement than yeah. more of the traditional DTT because what we're asking of the therapist is that while they are having fun with the child and, and engaging them and motivating them, they have to think in the back of their head what they're working on what they're taking data on, what are their acquisition tasks, what are their maintenance tasks, is there a risk of behavior here, what antecedent strategy am I going to use, if they have behavior, what am I going to do as a reactive strategy, they have to hold so much information in their head. Mm-hmm. And then we're also asking them, you know, to keep the iPad nearby and take online data and, um, and oh, they have to write excellent progress notes because otherwise we'll be audited by the insurance and, <laughs> you know it, it, it just we're asking so 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 much of our therapists. yes and the thing is um, i think when other people are watching sessions that are play-based and naturalistic it looks like nothing. It looks it looks like, like i know play. we have other professionals that maybe haven't had exposure to this type of intervention before and they'll come and watch our sessions and, and go well that's really easy and um, yeah, i can do that and it's kind of like sure, okay sure. <laughs> go ahead yes. but then you don't understand everything yeah. else that's going on in the background and i found that in the past if i've had staff that have been trained in more traditional approaches it takes an awful lot longer to undo that than it does for yes. somebody who just has a really great kind of sense of how to engage a child they're often a lot easier to to kind of train up in this approach but it's having that science behind it as well, that in understanding of the theory as to why you're having great fun with the Play-Doh. <laughs> um, yes. And, and, and actually, let me, uh, yes, I, I agree with you, but let me qualify. I think if someone has just learned to do DTT, then they have a really hard time switching to NDBI. Yeah. But if they truly understand the science between the DTT, then they have no problem. Yeah. Because they understand the ABC, they understand the contingency component. 
all they have to do is switch it to being more child-led and having shared control. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're still being contingent. But I think that um, really good people who understand the ABC contingencies, they they can step right into um, NDBI models Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, what we see. But I often prefer to, to hire people that do not have a ton of background in our field. Mm-hmm. Um, we really select our people on, can you, do you know how to have fun with kids? Mm-hmm. Um, do you know how to play? Are you, you know, exciting? And are you going to be able to engage this child and, and get them to laugh and have fun with you? Can you be silly? One of the things we do in our interview is we give our therapists a bag with a bunch of random things mm-hmm. in it, um, like, you know, five plastic snakes, a ball of yarn, uh, some straws and a cup. And I think there's one more thing, but I can't think of it. And then we give it to them and we say, show me how many ways you can play with this. <laughs> and then we score them to say, OK, you know, they, they were able to come up with an academic task. They could turn it into a game. They did some pretend play. They could come up with like a, a an outside activity um, and we score to make sure that they can. Oh, and a sensory activity, of course. And then, you know, we score them to see that they can hit all of the categories. People that hit all the categories, they do really well yeah. in our program. Um, and if they use the bag, oh, they're going <laughs> to be the best. <laughs> I was going to say that would, yeah, that would be more. I would definitely be using the bag. <laughs> Yes, yes. We've had this see... with children in bags, you know, the big IKEA bags. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's what yeah, we, yeah. We've done that in our social so groups. <laughs> yes, it, it's so fun. And it's amazing to see what people come up with. Um, I've had people in interviews that I did this with that would just have me laughing so hard. I'd be under the table. And I'd be like, <laughs> you're hired. Oh, my gosh. It'd be so much fun. And I think the thing with an NDBR model is, you know, the, the theory is very important. The science is very important, but it's very easy for parents to get involved as well and to understand all of those components and, and be able to teach their child at home. And for us, particularly, because we can't provide any real level of intervention that's like intensive due to funding and, and lots of kind of re- restraints like that. But we work really solely with parents um, and especially over the pandemic, we have been, you know, and just giving parents some basic training in ABC strategies and contingency and all of the things we talked about, they really click and their children make huge progress. And, and maybe, you know, that that's, you know, they're not just needing to see a therapist and they've been able to generalize that with other members of the family and, and things like that. So I think these kind of models are so effective for families as a, as a kind of, you know, parent training model as well. They're hugely important. And I think, you know, my my dissertation was about joint attention and it was really a, a, an, an intervention where I solely worked to teach the parent how to use PRT to create learning opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was extremely exciting to see parents really get the hang of, you know, how can I hold out so that my child is going to respond to me? How can I set up opportunities where they are going to be more interested in engaging with me. And and you could see the joint attention improving at a level that, you know, really made a long-term difference. Um, and I would have these pre and these post videos. And then, you know, in the pre-video, you could see the parent just trying and trying to engage with the with the child and not really getting any responding. And in the post video, and this is only eight weeks later, mm-hmm. um, you can see all of these 
circles of communication being closed, as they like to say in some of the other models, <laughs> um, you can really see that the opportunities are being created very consciously by the parent and he or she is being very contingent with the child. And so the child is feeling successful, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a gigantic difference for the child and the parent, because I think oftentimes, you know, because the child is the patient, we think about the child's improvement, but in terms of mental health, for the parent to feel successful with their child mm -hmm. and being able to connect and engage with their child is, is enormously important for that entire family, not just yeah. for the parents, yeah. um, but for the for the marriage, for the siblings, um, for the long term outcome for that entire unit. Yeah. Um, so I feel very inspired by that. You mm -hmm. know, um, even though I also say, you know, being a parent and having raised three kids now, I understand that you know, for parents, it is hard to come home from a full time job or full-time working with your kids and then having to sit with a 20 something that is trying to teach you how to work with your kid. It's just incredibly um, difficult to trust that process and to really um, give it the attention that it needs. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm thankful I'm in California where we do have therapists who can go out and work with the kids because it, I also feel like it's not completely fair that we are putting so much responsibility on the parent. Yeah, I think um, it needs to be that medium, the happy medium between the two, yes. isn't it? Um, and that's why the pandemic's been hard on our part, because we've had to kind of close both our centres most of the, the year on and off. We've had a few months where we've been open, but it really has all been on the parents and, you know, coaching through Zoom calls. Um, but, you know, they, they've done brilliantly. And, and, you know, I think some of them could probably come and work for us if they want a change of career after this. Yeah. <laughs> we can just employ a bunch of parents. They probably don't need our services anymore, but they can come and work for us. Because the children are doing so well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, once once their child is at school and, you know, maybe at university, they've got more time on their hands. So, you know. <laughs> so yeah. in terms of your research then, you've done lots of research and written lots of things over the years. What, what's been, I mean, you talked a little bit about your joint attention project and, and how quick the changes were. And, and we see that with the children that are working with similar, similar kind of um, model that we're using. What have been your most interesting or surprising research findings or outcomes over the years? Like what's kind of the one thing that you thought, oh, that was different from what you expected? Mm, it's not so much different from what I expected, but I think what comes to mind is I remember seeing a presentation by Sally Rogers sometime during my years in grad school where she showed a video um, about how typical kids learn from imitation. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember it very vividly. She had these little little girls on the video and they would just follow each other with their, you know, umbrellas. I, I don't remember what, I don't know why I remember that so vividly, <laughs> but um, not having, having kids at the time when I saw the video, I don't think I had realized what a role imitations plays in learning to mm. that um, effect. Now that I have kids, I, I notice all the time, my kids are imitating the good and the bad <laughs> for myself. Right. Um, but I remember being really blown away by that. Um, and, and her work, of course, in the early star Denver model um, has really put an emphasis on the role of imitation. Um, and, and it has become a much stronger tool, I think. And there's been a lot of research about imitation 
um, that I think has really been helpful to our field um, and certainly has been helpful in our programming. So that's probably, I think, what 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 was the you know, it wasn't wasn't something that PRT really focused on. So I think when I saw that and saw how ESDM really brought that in, it really mm-hmm. um, kind of jolted me to think, oh, this is something I really have to make sure that I understand and, and know all the research behind. Uh, for my own research, you know, I, I loved being in grad school, but after grad school, I really haven't done a lot of research on my own. I've really been much more of a clinician. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've really, over the last 10 years or so, I've really done a lot of thinking about systems of intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, growing a company, you really need kind of a different skill set. Yeah. Um, you have to think about, you know, not just how does it work with one child, but how do you keep the quality for all of the kids in the programming? Mm-hmm. How do you ensure that you have fidelity of implementation? How, you know, kind of like the compliance systems across the organization. And I think, you know, I think I think I would love to get into more research again. And I loved writing the book with my with my esteemed colleagues. It was amazing <laughs> to work with people that, you know, I've admired my whole life, but I, I wish I could say I, I had gotten into more research, but I just don't have the time for it anymore. <laughs> I know it's finding the time, isn't it? It's impossible. <laughs> it's absolutely impossible. Yes. We have some nice, yes. nice findings from a little project we did over lockdown. I mean, who does research in lockdown? But we did. That's impressive. <laughs> so, but I'm much more of a qualitative researcher. So I have a very, um, very nice team that are very good at quantitative analysis. So I'm like, off you go. <laughs> make me some graphs and make them look pretty and what's been your most enjoyable kind of project today I guess in steps and, and the academy and, and things like that but has there been a specific part of in steps that's been your most enjoyable kind of moment or most enjoyable part well I think for me the highlight of my professional career so far was the NDBI conference we brought all the researchers of the different NDBI models together and and being able to organize that and facilitate that collaboration between these these esteemed uh, researchers was um, mind-blowing it was it just really to me was sort of the synthesis of everything that I'd hoped for in my career. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I've always felt frustrated by the fragmentation in our field. Um, And going to a lot of ABA conferences as a student and after graduating, I I feel, I always felt that the NDBI models were underrepresented at, at ABA conferences and, and even, you know, kind of shunted a little bit, Um, not, uh, not seen as an important part of ABA. Mm -hmm. Um, and the NDBI world, you know, it has all of these really well-developed, well-researched models at these different universities, but there wasn't a comprehensive framework to think about how they are all more the same than different. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, starting with being a part of writing the article that, that introduced the term of NDBI, writing the book where I interacted with all of these um clinicians and researchers and then bringing them together at the conference um it was it was just a satisfying feeling <laughs> to to be part of of bringing integrating all of the different research together so that as as a field we can be stronger um if we can um put our research in the framework of a broader model 
rather than everybody working on their own model in isolation. So I, I think that's been, um, I, I'm hoping that that is something that is really going to push our field forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's, that's, you know, I, I'm hoping that that will be my biggest contribution, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to bring people together, they, like you say, it's, it can be very fragmented. And I think in America, it's, it's very, you know, attached to certain universities, funding's attached to this project, that project, everything else, and, and a lot of people are doing their own thing, and it's trying to bring yeah. everyone together, and, and I think that, I mean, we didn't get to go to that, unfortunately, we would have loved to, but we couldn't at the time, um, but we will come to the next one, <laughs> for sure, <laughs> um, and it's, ex- yes. it's exciting to try and bring all these people together, because like you say, we're more the same than different in this field, and it's trying to stick together in, in that kind of power of numbers, really. So if you could give advice to parents in the UK who have very limited access to services like yours, I mean, maybe InSteps can just expand to the UK as well. I mean, like, why not? <laughs> Texas, London. <laughs> um, if you could give it... <laughs> I know, there's, there's not a lot of difference. You don't have any insurance problems over here. It's all good. Just don't have any. Um, if you could give advice to parents in the UK who are you know, just starting this, this journey, they've just started to have concerns about their little ones developing and they are very limited in the services and the access to, to kind of input. Um, what would be your top three tips for a parent in that position? Oh, my top three tips. Um, I would say my number one tip would be to give yourself grace. Um, really been doing a lot of thinking about, you know, self-compassion and self-care and taking care of yourself because if your bucket is not full you cannot fill other people's buckets and i think worrying about your child and being concerned about their development is extremely draining and so i think you need to make sure that you get support for yourself whether that is from your best friends or a therapist or services in your area or other parents who are going through this process, um, but making sure that you have what you need to be the best parent that you can be for your child, I think is extremely important. Mm-hmm. So that'd be my first tip. Take care of yourself first in your marriage, if you're married. My second tip would be try to learn as much as you can. Try to you know, really understand the different models of treatment within, you know, the autism world. There are many models of treatment um, and you don't need to choose one. You just need to choose the strategies and help your team choose the strategies that fit best with your child. But I think sometimes our field tends to pigeonhole each other and I don't think that's necessary. So I would say, you know, really get to know the team that 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 you have access to, whether that is via the phone, um, via video. I mean, we we're not as confined as we were even two years ago. You know, right. Telehealth has changed the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we are working with a family right now in Alabama. That's really far away from us. We're doing it over telehealth and it's having some remarkable effects. It's been amazing to um, see how far reaching our interventions can be with telehealth and how many more people we can reach. So it's been, you know, a privilege for us to really be able to um, reach more families than we ever could before. So, so, so I think even though there isn't insurance in, in England, I would say 
you know, telehealth sessions with a provider can be life-changing if you can learn the strategies and get the input. I mean, even at, at InSteps, our training has really changed, Ruth, because now, because we can't go out, I call this the gift of COVID, um, <laughs> everyone already had iPads and they're taking their iPads in a family home and our trainer can't go out. So our, our new staff is wearing an ear pod and the iPad is set up and they are doing Zoom meetings and they're basically getting feedback and training via the ear, ear pod uh, while they're working with the child. I mean, that's amazing to me. We, we couldn't do that um, years ago. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty exciting. Using telehealth, I think parents have more access now than ever before you know, try to learn as much as you can, read as much as you can, and and really work with, um, try to think outside the box in terms of how you can get help for your child. Um, telehealth is a great option for that. Um, my third tip would be to not forget about your other kids. Um, you know, I, I think in, in our model, mm -hmm. really try to think about the family as a whole um, because that unit needs to be strong in order to support the child with autism and the, and the, and the family unit needs to be um, have space to learn those new strategies and implement them and really change our own behavior. Um, so I, I think yeah. um, we, we really try to um, involve the other kids whenever we can uh, use them as opportunities for social interaction and practice and play um, I think it's really important to think of the child with autism as part of a community, um, the in, 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 you know, the own family. But then oftentimes in in our um, wider communities, we have grandparents involved. Mm -hmm. Sometimes multiple families are living in a home, um, school, um, the neighborhood. Um, we really try to think about, OK, where where does this child need to function and how do we support them in each environment that they uh, encounter, um, you know, because it has to be across environments to be sustainable and generalized. Um, but I think it is important that we make space for the other kids and have attention for their needs as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing about a naturalistic um, approach is that you can actually get siblings involved. Yes. It's a it's a lot more fun and easier to access. Um, so we do that with a lot of our older siblings. And even if they're just one year older and they're maybe four years old and their little brother's two, three or two years old, yes. big sisters love to be the teacher. So, you know, just getting getting those kids to prompt for bubbles and then be able to blow the bubbles. And yeah, it's great. I mean, I think we've, we've interviewed a few families that have spoken about how they're, they're kind of sibling. One family sibling basically pleases the situation and um, always just says, you know, what would Rona do? Because that's their therapist. And if their yeah. brother is getting away with things, he maybe shouldn't be. <laughs> what would Rona do? <laughs> so he's like, their, they're almost like their therapy police. Oh, that's um, so, <laughs> It has been amazing talking to you. And thank you so much for that. Sorry about the, the technology blip in the middle, no which never happened before. No. It's very strange. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I would say, you know, I, I'm really impressed, Ruth, that you are able to function as well as you do in the environment that you're in. And I, I, I'm really <laughs> happy and proud to know you. I, I think you, you've thank shown you. such persistence and such, you know, you, you have a really strong vision of what you want. And I, I'm just really thankful that you invited me for this podcast and 
And I'm hoping to keep in touch and see you grow, 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 because we know it's needed. I know we would like to grow. We would like to get to the 200 star. <laughs> um, maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, I know. And it's just it's time. But it's lovely to have your support as well. And it's been really great getting to know you over the years and seeing in steps in action and meeting your team. And obviously, COVID is stopping all the traveling at the moment. But we will definitely come back and visit you. Um, and hopefully you won't bring all 200 of my staff by the time that happens. <laughs> maybe three or four. Thank you so much to Dr. Rivana for joining us in this episode. It was great to talk to you and we're really grateful to have friends like you who um, believe in us as much as you do and um, someone to aspire to, definitely. Um, If you're interested in knowing a little bit more about InSteps, then their website is at www.insteps.com and that's InSteps with two Ps. Um, And like I say, they have four clinics and they have a school as well now called the InSteps Academy, which is a very unique and ever-growing private school for children with autism. And Ivana's book is available on Amazon and other places. And it's called Naturalistic Developmental Behavioural Interventions for Autism Spectrum Disorder. It's a great read for professionals that are interested in this field and any parents who really like to read um, kind of research-based books, this would be a great start. It's by Dr. Ivana Bruinsma and Dr. Mendy Minjaras and Dr. Laura Shreedman and Dr. Robin Starmer. Um, So thank you very much for joining us today. And if you think that we might be able to help you, we work with families worldwide and we are available at www.blueskyautism.com or www.playtotalk.co.uk.